good to see you guys. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a detour this morning, um, partly seasonal and partly kind of practical in the flow of our study. Uh, as you know, we've been laboring joyfully in 1 Corinthians, and more specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just had some rich discussion and study on the body of Christ. It's an important section in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But we are reaching kind of a transition point in that chapter and in our study that is moving us into kind of another sort of theme, if you will, in the study. So I want to take a moment to uh, capitalize on that transition and also because we're not going to be together next Sunday or the following Sunday. So there'll be a two Sunday break where we won't even be uh, together for this particular uh, study. And so rather than trying to kind of introduce something that we then go away and and uh, sort of have to catch back up on two weeks from now, I thought I'd just kind of take a little bit of a detour and do something somewhat seasonal in light of uh, this time of Advent and the celebration of the Savior's birth. Um, just have an opening question, maybe a, don't need a lot of feedback particularly, but just a general sense of, uh, you know, where everybody is. Is anybody uh, feeling the proverbial Christmas rush at any point right now? Is anybody, is, that, is anybody experiencing, you know, that whole thing of like pressed calendars and unusual deadlines and uh, plans that you wouldn't normally be trying to undertake at any other given time of the year? Um, it, this is kind of a, a common thing. I think we, we sort of are used to it in a sense, especially if you've been living long enough, or if you've had a family, an extended family long enough, or uh, just the things that go along with this time of year, it's fairly common uh, for us to feel just a sense of pressure, you know, and I mean, just getting around is different. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's more traffic out. You know, you get out and you kind of like you're driving around and you're thinking, well, it's Saturday. It's like, it's like 930 in the morning. Like, what is going on? And don't these people know that they shouldn't be here when I'm trying to get through here? It's just a really odd kind of experience where it happens every year. And, you know, it just doesn't take much thought to realize what's going on. But it still kind of squeezes in on us. And, you know, I, if, you're, if you're at any, anything like me, I mean, I'm not necessarily the best sort of planner aheader, you know, kind of person. So I don't tend to think, well, you know, it's December 15th or December 16th or December 17th or whatever. And so probably there's going to be more people out or I probably need to get, you know, a 15 minute head start. I don't even think like that. I'm like, yeah, it usually takes this long. So that's how long it'll take again. So the pressure that comes uh, during this time of year and you know, whether it's work deadlines or whatever it might be, uh, I think is uniquely challenging for us. And, you know, there's that proverbial um, sort of mantra that we contemplate, and that is that you know, we don't want to miss out on what this season is really focused on. Um, interesting, though, to think about it. We, we tend to think sort of with a certain historical arrogance. Uh, that's, that kind of goes with every society and every sort of epoch of time. There's a certain arrogance that we have, like our time is different or unique or more challenging in certain ways or whatever than any other time. You know, we kind of sense that we're, what we're experiencing is, I mean, I know it used to be kind of like that, but if they, if they had to live now, they wouldn't survive. But I, I came across a little, uh, a little excerpt from an essay entitled Life at High Pressure. 
This is written, an essay written by a British writer named W.R. Gregg. And he wrote this essay in 1877. And listen to what he said. Beyond doubt, the most salient characteristic of life in this latter portion of the 19th century is its speed. What we may call its hurry, the rate at which we move, the high pressure at which we work. And the question to be considered is first, whether this rapid rate is in itself a good, and next, whether it is worth the price we pay for it. A price reckoned upon and not very easily thoroughly to ascertain, end quote. Now imagine, this was the prevailing concern of this particular rather well-known essayist of his era in the United Kingdom 150 years ago. This was before the advent of the automobile. People were getting around primarily by horse-drawn carriage. Electricity was not in homes yet. Believe it or not, everyone didn't have a smartphone, in other words. This was that era of time. Things that we are... They were on the cusp of a lot of invention and innovation. But still, it was prior to some of these things that we tend to look to as common in terms of mobility and technology and those kinds of things. And this writer poses what I think is a profound question. I'm sure you picked up on it. Is this rapid rate in itself a good? And is it worth the price we pay for it? And most of us would be like, no and no. Right? Immediately we're like, no. It's interesting to think about how we live in a time where we feel a certain pressure that is often associated with the pace of our life. Uh, And I just mentioned one example of how things are different now with traffic. Well, I mean, imagine not having a car to drive around in all the time. And yet still, they were grappling with pace and whether or not all this is even worth it. All of this industry and all this activity and all of this hubbub, is it even worth it? In a 2016 BBC article, fast-forwarding to modern era, the article that I want to read from is entitled, Why You Feel Busy All the Time When You're Actually Not. How about that? This is not, uh, written by a, a gentleman named Oliver, Oliver Berkman. Let me just read this article for us to kind of set our thinking in the direction I would like to take us this morning. It begins, Overwhelmed? It can seem like we're busier than ever, but that's not quite true, says Oliver Berkman, who has been exploring the topic in a new series for BBC Radio 4. Few facts about modern life seem more indisputable than how busy everyone seems to be. Across the industrialized world, large numbers of survey respondents tell researchers they're overburdened with work at the expense of time with family and friends. And it's possible that the most overwhelmed people weren't even asked how they felt, according to one ingenious 2014 study. One major reason people decline to take part in the survey is they feel too busy. Isn't that ironic? You might assume the explanation was straightforward. We feel so much busier these days because we've got so much more to do. 
but you'd be wrong. The total time people are working, whether paid or otherwise, has not increased in Europe or North America in recent decades. Modern parents who worry they're spending insufficient time with their children spend significantly more of it than those in generations past. The headline changes over the last 50 years are that women do a whole lot less unpaid work and a whole lot more paid work. And men do quite a bit less paid work and a whole lot more unpaid work, says Jonathan Gershony of the Center for Time Use Research at Oxford University. But, he says, the total amounts of work are pretty much exactly the same. What's more, the data also shows that the people who say they're the busiest generally aren't. Anybody want to volunteer for designation? (laughs) What's going on, the writer says. Part of the answer is simple economics. As economies grow and the incomes of the better off have risen over time, time has literally become more valuable. Any given hour is worth more, so we experience more pressure to squeeze in more work. But it's also a result of the kind of work in which many of us are engaged. In former eras, dominated by farming or manufacturing, labor could certainly be physically punishing, but it obeyed certain limits. You can't harvest the crops before they're ready. You can't make more physical products than the available material allows. But in the era of what management consultant Peter Drucker called knowledge work, that's changed. We live in an infinite world, says Tony Crabb, author of the book Busy, How to Thrive in a World of Too Much. There are always more incoming emails, more meetings, more things to read, more ideas to follow up on. And digital mobile technology means you can easily crank through a few more to-do list items at home or on holiday or at the gym. The result, inevitably, is feeling overwhelmed. We're each finite human beings with finite energy and abilities attempting to get through an infinite amount. We feel a social pressure to do it all at work and at home, but that's not just really difficult. It's a mathematical impossibility. Let me say that again for some of you. It's a mathematical impossibility. With that kind of time pressure weighing on us, weighing us down, excuse me, it's hardly surprising that we live with one eye on the clock. But psychological research demonstrates that this kind of time awareness actually leads to worse performance, not to mention reduced levels of compassion. So the ironic consequence of the busy feeling is that we handle our to-do lists less well than if we weren't so rushed. The economist Sindil Melanthanin and the behavioral scientist Eldar Sharif describe this as a problem of, quote, cognitive bandwidth. Feelings of scarcity, whether money or time, prey on the mind, thereby impairing decision-making. When you're busy, you're likely to make poor time management choices, taking on commitments you can't handle, or prioritizing trifling tasks over crucial ones. A vicious spiral kicks in. Your feelings of busyness leave you even busier than before. Arguably worst of all, this mindset spreads to infect our So that even when finally does permit an hour or two for recuperation, we end up feeling like that ought to be spent productively too. How many of you have ever put your smartphone on your nightstand 
lie lie down on your pillow, try to drift off to sleep, remember something, pick your smartphone back up, set a reminder, send an email. How many of you ever, don't don't raise your hands because it'll all implicate you, but I know I've done it. You lay down and all of a sudden something comes to mind. Well, what do you have to do? Well, you don't go to sleep, of course, right? It's crazy. If there's a solution to the busyness epidemic, the article goes on, other than the universal enforcement of a 21-hour work week, how about that? It'd be nice. It may lie in clearly perceiving just how irrational our attitudes have become. Historically, the ultimate symbol of wealth, achievement, and social superiority was the freedom not to work. The true badge of honor, as the 19th century economist Thornstein Veblen put it, was leisure. Now... It's busyness that has become an indicator of high status. In our society are often very busy and have to be, says Gershony. You ask me, am I busy? And I tell you, yes, of course I'm busy because I'm an important person, end quote. To see how absurd it is to value sheer activity in this manner, consider a story told by the behavioral economist Dan Airely about a locksmith he once met. Early in his career, the locksmith was just that good, was not just, excuse me, was just not that good at it. It would take him a really long time to open the door, and he would often break the lock, Airely says. Still, people were happy to pay his fee and throw in a tip. As he got better and faster, though, they complained about the fee and stopped tipping. You'd think they would value regaining access to their house or car more swiftly. But what they really wanted was to see the locksmith putting in the time and effort, even if it meant a longer wait. Too often, we take a similar attitude, not only to other people, but ourselves. We measure our worth not by the results we achieve, but by how much of our time we spend doing. We live frenetic lives, at least in part, because it makes us feel good about ourselves. To put it mildly, this makes no sense. Perhaps we long enough to realize that if we weren't so busy. I find that to be rather telling and somewhat illustrative of, I think, our modern lives and our modern era for, for many of us, if not seasons, it certainly it, it, it falls upon us and we have to battle with this, this ongoing struggle of our lives in this information-saturated culture, this fast-paced, highly mobile culture. This pressure to be doing, to be productive. In other words, we have no excuse. If we need to pick something up from somewhere, well, we just we have a car. We just go get in and we go take care of it. If we need to communicate with someone, if there's a message that needs to be sent, well, why would we wait? We'll end up forgetting it. We've got to do it now. People are expecting us to do it now, even. This is the ongoing struggle of our lives, and I think that it just gets magnified in a season like this. This doesn't even take into account the actual unique struggles and trials that we might be experiencing at this time of year. Our brother just mentioned one for him and his own family, right? I mean, there are people among us who are not just going through the the holiday rush, the Christmas rush. They're not just experiencing cramped time schedules and stressed decision-making processes because they've got to do this and that and their their to-do list is much bigger and 
they've got a plan for this and family's coming to town or we're going here. I mean, it's, it's not just that, but there's actual unique, maybe even sustained trials that are being endured right now. I, I didn't mention this and I, I, I just thought I'd take opportunity here, but one of our own Joan Martin is in the hospital and we, she's been sort of, um, kind of homebound, if you will, for quite some time now. And if any of you know Joan Martin, the last place that she wants to be is anywhere by herself. And she is so desperately missing the fellowship of the church right now. But her health is preventing her from being here. We had an opportunity to visit with her last Sunday. And she, the, the, the expressions of, of longing to be with the church were palpable in that time with her. And then just to find out a couple of days later, she's back in the hospital. And it's Christmas time. And her communication was that she's got family coming to town and she's really praying that she'll be out when her family comes. I mean, these are like real visceral challenges amongst our people at this time of year when, you know, we want to be thinking of, you know, peace on earth and goodwill toward men and Christmas carols and cookies and all those kinds of things. So there's the natural pace of a frenetic life in a culture like ours. There's the compounding effect of trial and struggle that tends to not make the season as bright as we would like it to be. And I think that we feel a certain pressure more acutely to not let these things trouble us the way that they do at this time of year. And I think we feel the pressure more acutely this time of year because, as I've already said, there are actual increases in schedule demands. Those are real. Work deadlines and more things that are pressing in on our normal routines and schedules and Christmas festivities and shopping and traffic and all the things that I mentioned. But the second reason I think we feel a certain pressure during this time of year is that As believers, I think that we probably genuinely wrestle with a genuine desire for a more meaningful, worshipful, reflective celebration of the season. And everything's pressing in, or this trial seems to just bear down on us, or this demand comes our way, or traffic, or whatever. Like, we're like, we're trying, we want. To have the right mindset. We want as God's people to celebrate the season of Christmas. The celebration of the Savior's birth. In a way that is reflective. And is contemplative. And is worthy of the Savior's birth. And how we celebrate that. And so we wrestle with this. During this time of year. A number of years ago. It's it's been a number of years. I don't remember exactly when it was. But. I remember explicitly, I was reading through um, the Christmas sort of Advent narratives in the the Gospels. And in Luke's Gospel, I came across a, a very small particular verse that just struck me. I mean, it just literally floored me. It's a verse that's sort of tucked away in Luke's account of the angelic visit of the shepherds. And we actually were singing about it before we began in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. So if you want to turn there. 
But I, 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 this, this, this one verse is just to me so powerful, insightful, and actually practically helpful for this time of year that we find ourselves in and the desire that we have to, to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the incarnation of Christ in a way that is fitting. We'll start in Luke chapter 2 and begin with verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's the verse. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. There's Mary. And it says... She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So think of this with me for a moment. I, I just want us to reflect on some things. This is not an exposition of this passage. This is just some reflections on what we see here in this narrative. So in the midst of what was undoubtedly a highly intense even a frenetic season for Mary. Luke gives us this window into her heart. There, there are two elements here that, that Luke mentions that characterize Mary's disposition of heart and mind. The first one is treasuring. She was treasuring these things. And the second is that she was pondering them. Treasuring and pondering. This, this term, treasuring, it literally means to preserve against harm or ruin, or to protect or to defend. Or it could mean to have a marked regard for, or it could be to keep in mind or to be concerned about, or to store information in one's mind for careful consideration. She was holding on to, guarding, protecting, preserving for future use, for future reflection, these things, it says. In fact, some commentators believe that this is a, a clue. This is Luke's clue to the fact that Mary was one of his primary sources for his Gospels. I mean, Luke starts his Gospel narrative with talking about he consulted eyewitnesses, right? Well, I kind of think she was probably a really good eyewitness to some of this stuff. 
And he does this twice, by the way. We might look at the next, the second one in a moment. But this window into her heart showing us that she was treasuring, protecting, guarding, holding on to this information. And then she was pondering. One commentator describes that term this way. It actually carries the sense of having an internal conversation with oneself. It refers to a person who is puzzled by what they have heard, but keeps keeps it in mind in order to understand its meaning, often with divine help, the writer says. He goes on, for Mary, it is an indication of an extended period of sustained reflection by someone trying to make sense and plumb the depths of all that she has experienced. So even even as as we get this window into the heart of Mary, what we see with Mary is that she's in, in the midst of a frenetic, chaotic, difficult time, season of her life. She's trying to hold on to the realities of these things that she's seeing and experiencing, guard them, protect them in her heart and her mind. But also she's pondering and considering and reflecting and having these internal meditative conversations with herself. What can all this mean? What is the significance of this? It says that that she was pondering all these things in her heart. Well, what things? Well, we could go to the immediate context and see in verse 17 that the shepherds, when they came, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, which in verse 10 begins with, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be, be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior, the Anointed One of God is born to you this day. Not only that, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. There's Mary, having endured the travail of labor and having lain this child in a manger. And the shepherds show up after a worship concert by the heavenly host. Can you imagine the enthusiasm and the excitement and the joy and the wonder And they're saying, this is what they told us. There'd be a sign. We'd find a baby wrapped in a manger. And Mary's just sitting there thinking, I gave birth to this child, and there he is. What can this mean? It's not just that, though. Because nine months earlier, if you recall, in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, she's given a heads up about what's about to transpire. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. There she is again. She's trying to discern. She's perplexed. What can this be? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So here's the angel proclaiming to Mary, you are favored, you have been specially chosen by God to conceive by the Holy Spirit this one who will be called Jesus, which literally means Savior, and he will be called the Most High God. And her mind goes to, how can this be? What does she say? How can this be since I'm a virgin? She has not taken all this in yet. She's literally thinking about the practical, physiological impossibilities of such an event. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will call holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month, uh, and, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There is a statement by Mary of humility and submission to the will of the Lord, but not a statement of understanding. This is why pondering was necessary. This is why treasuring was necessary. She's just merely saying, if this is the Lord's will, this is the Lord's will. Not, wait, can you go into more detail? I need a further explanation. Map this out for me a little more clearly so that I can ascertain in my own mind what this actually should mean for me right now. No, it was a submissive, as the Lord wills. But not a statement of full understanding. So now here she is, nine months hence. The travail of childbirth is past. She's in a stable, no less. By the way, thinking of like difficult circumstances or a level of chaos or, I mean, imagine, that's, that's your birthing locale. And now she's looking at this infant in this manger and she's listening to the testimony of these shepherds and she's just treasuring them in her heart and pondering them in her heart. How can these things be? And yet they are. Why would he choose me? And yet he did. This is, to me, an extremely comforting and helpful illustration for us. I think that in seasons like this, and even in times like these that we find ourselves in, we can become very inordinately and even sinfully preoccupied with finding, discovering, understanding all the answers and solutions and remedies 
to just about everything in our lives. We need to know how we're going to get there. What's the fastest route? How is this situation going to work itself out? How am I possibly going to get all the things done on my to-do list? I've got, to, I've got to make a better to-do list so that I can have more assurance that I will be able to get all these things done on my to-do list. You, you follow what I'm saying? What we are grappling with more times than not is our own pride thinking that we are entitled to know, to understand with crystal clarity according to our genius how these things are supposed to work out. What the Lord is actually up to in this trial. And yet, the encouragement from this, by common reference point, this child, this young girl, she is doing what the most mature of us need to learn to do. In the midst of seasons of pressure and chaos and trial and struggle, In a season in which we know God is doing something enormous and we don't understand it. And we're feeling the actual pressures of actual struggle. Childbirth in a stable. Uncertainty about the future of giving birth as someone who's unmarried. The scorn that her husband might have to face in not putting her away. I mean, all the things that were going on in the heart and mind of this young girl. And yet she's giving us a tremendous lesson here. An an illustration of, of how we can just walk through these seasons of time where things are pressed, where things are rushed where we're grappling with the tension of a desire to actually reflect properly and worship properly in the season of celebration for every believer. We're desiring that, and yet we're finding it more and more and more difficult the closer we get to Christmas Day. And and it's because we have some, I think, expectation of what this calls us to, this, this season of celebration. Does it require all the answers to be addressed? Does it require the mystery to be alleviated from our lives? Does it require the schedule to slow down? Is it necessary for every trial that we're under to lift for us to celebrate the incarnation of Christ? A right? Well, not if we just resign it to this simple practice of treasuring and pondering. Of of holding fast to these things. And of having internal, reflective, meditative conversations about what the Lord has actually done. When's the last time you and I have just taken ten minutes to reflect upon the wonder of the fact that God made you alive when you were dead. Why? Why would he choose me?
And yet, just a moment of reflection by every believer on these truths, on these realities, these things that we can't fully understand. We can't fully understand the incarnation. I mean, if you think you can, you can't. You just can't. We can't. And yet, we're called to reflect, to treasure, and to ponder what the Lord has done so that we can then just simply rejoice in humility and confident assurance. Why? I don't fully know. How? I'm not quite sure. But he did. But he has. And I just humbly revel in it. This reminds me of this great incarnational passage in Philippians chapter 2. It moves us from the narrative of the incarnation to the Apostle Paul's sort of articulation of it as a, a means of instructing us as God's people, as the church. But listen to what he says in using the incarnation, the wonder of the incarnation as a point of illustration and injunction for us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, he says, So that there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now stop right there. When you consider how we can become so, quote-unquote, overwhelmed, particularly in seasons like this, must we not confess that the large motivation for our feeling overwhelmed, the large reason for our feeling overwhelmed is because we're way too consumed with ourselves and what we've got to get done and what's pressing in around us? What's on our to-do list? What our boss is tasking us with right now? This struggle that I'm going through, my family, this and that and the other. We, We can become very preoccupied with ourselves. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, listen, here's here's what you need to think about when you think about the incarnation of Christ. If, If you want to be characterized by someone who is making the joy of others complete, who is having the same love and the same mind and the fellowship of God's people, who's walking in humility rather than in ambition or conceit? Well, you count others as more significant than yourselves. You not only look out for your own interests, but the interests of others. Because... You have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Regardless of how our, our sort of traditional familial festivities and celebrations of the season pan out, and regardless of what transpires in our lives over the week ahead, and whether we find ourselves spending Christmas Day in a hospital or at home or with family or alone, this is, this is, this is the call to treasure and to ponder the wonder of the incarnation of Christ. And it's not just some ethereal, intangible exercise. It is directly tied to attitudes that compel actions that involve us continuing to die to ourselves in the same way that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And to considering others and not just considering ourselves. This, this, is, this is the call for truly celebrating Christmas. And I think one of the challenges that we face, not only with the press of our schedules, but we face this challenge of what I'll just refer to as excess sentimentality about the nature of this celebration this season. And what Scripture would call us to is to take note of what actually has happened. What God has actually done. How He did it. With whom He originally did these things. What were the circumstances? What was the environment? What was the nature of their travail, of their struggle, of their challenge? And yet, there was celebration and worship. Glory to God in the highest. Why? Because a Savior has been born. Not because my Christmas muffins turned out well. Not because my schedule loosened up and gave me some leisure time. No, a Savior's been born. And by the way, I know this because He saved me. And though it's maybe in some ways a greater challenge, and though in certainly very real ways it requires deeper faith and in some ways more endurance and perseverance, the true believer can actually celebrate Christmas anywhere, under any circumstance, at any time. Because these things that were true about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done are more true and tangible and real for you now than ever before. The Savior has come. He has fulfilled all that the law required. That's been done. He has taken on our sin. And He has suffered the wrath of God for us. That's been done. He has given every believer new life in Christ. It's done. And He's coming again. 
And regardless of the pressures of time and life on a fallen planet, he's coming again to make all things new. Treasure that. Ponder that. Consider that. Be humbled by these realities. In common parlance, let's get over ourselves. Let's consider others. It's more important than ourselves in our schedules, in our to-do lists, in our trials. Let's serve one another with the same kind of love that Christ had as he demonstrated by coming and humbling himself and emptying himself, becoming a man and suffering death on a cross for us. And let us revel, treasure, ponder the reality that God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.